So deathbed Dan is basically, it's a concept that if I'm sat here right now and I think ahead to myself on my deathbed, so say I'm, you know, conservatively 70, 80, whatever I make it to, um, is he going to look back on what I'm doing now and be unhappy with how I've approached today? Like, am I going to, am I going to be glad for the energy I've put in today? You know, what, how is that going to reflect on, on deathbed Dan? Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing goals. This week we're talking to Daniel Wilcox about self-publishing. And the horror genre, you just couldn't help yourself, could you? Nope. Our interviewee this week is Daniel Wilcox. He is an international best-selling author and award-nominated podcaster of dark fiction. He is also an author coach, one-fifth of the digital story studio Hawk and Cleaver, co-founder of the iTunes-busting fiction podcast The Other Stories, CEO of horror imprint Devil's Rock Publishing, and the co-host of the Next Level Authors podcast. I sat down with him to talk all about self-publishing 101. And to talk about reading and writing horror. <laughs> that too. I'm new to the genre and it fascinates me, so I can help it. Because when I grew up, horror was all about just blood and gore and slasher horror. But actually now there's much more of a resurgence of the kind of more fantastical stuff, the supernatural stuff, the more psychological stuff. And that's more the kind of thing that I enjoy. So he recommended some books that I could check out. Fantastic. I love the uh, fanta fantasy stuff <laughs> in particular. Um, but the stuff, the psychological things that really mess with your head, that's, that's what gets me. That's what makes me sleep with the light on. <laughs> God, me it goes horror used to do it for me i was terrified after watching the woman in white and then and nowadays like i can watch stuff like the conjuring and the haunting anthology and it doesn't bother me that's good that's good it helps to have a westie i think she will alert you to anything she she was always on guard mode you'll be fine you say that something really creepy happened a couple of weeks ago she was in here with me and just staring at my book the where the books are there behind me no. just staring at them as if like she was watching something very creepy frankie keeps doing that here uh he won't protect me but um he just keeps staring at things and i think he's made friends with the ghost now so <laughs> it's cool i'm not jealous have you named the ghost no i don't know maybe i should name the ghost have when you named the skeleton behind you not yet we have on the facebook group a thread going with some name suggestions so i just need to do i need to put them all in a hat and pick one out yeah maybe and, you can do then, like a live in the group and pick them all out yes and get everyone to come join us yeah and pick them out and name the skeleton and maybe the ghost will turn up and join us on the live you never know now there's a creepy thought the ghost will get jealous that we haven't named it <laughs> i don't know why it's a him i don't know could be a her who knows either way like I was really freaked out the other day when I just stood in the bathroom and watched my bedroom door open. Like, shit's getting real. <laughs> well, as soon as like people start talking, my ghost, my brain goes, what's the logical explanation for this? Yeah, me too. But anyway, 
If you find this episode and our others enlightening or valuable, you can support the writer's mindset over on Patreon. There you'll get early access to episodes like three or four weeks before they go live, bonus content and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into creating these episodes for you. That's right. And you can become a podcast patron for as little as one pound. That's about $1.50 per month. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writer's mindset. Before we delve into personal updates, I want to do a podcast update first. Oh, podcast update. <laughs> you know everything. Yeah, well, I'm still excited to share it with everyone. <laughs> so this has actually been our best month ever, and we're recording this on the 31st of July 2021, and we haven't even started interview season yet, and yeah it's just pretty mad how many downloads we've had this month we released the trailer for season three yesterday and that's had loads of really lovely comments and done really well and yeah we've almost doubled listens this month compared to all of our other months and obviously the day isn't even over I'm yet so impressed it it blows my mind that there are so many lovely writers out there who listen to us ramble on about shit every week and <laughs> seem to like it i love it it's so nice and connecting with them on the facebook group in particular has been amazing recently um and getting to know some of them so yeah just know if you're listening we appreciate it we we see that you're listening not you specifically but you know and uh, <laughs> it makes us very happy it makes us very happy and we promise we're not actually watching you like Big Brother. That's just how Ellie made it <laughs> not, I didn't mean to say that. We're not, we're not watching you, but we watch the numbers, you know. We don't know who all these people are um, unless they come and talk to us in the group, which they're welcome to do. But we, we see that there's people listening. And even though it's just a number, it makes recording the episodes feel that little bit less lonely, doesn't it? Because you don't, you don't see the impact of recording the episode fully i don't think but seeing the numbers and connecting the people in the group and stuff it starts to hit home that people are actually listening and they do actually like this so it's nice it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside but back on track <laughs> uh personal updates uh do you want to start this week ellie i can start this week although my personal updates aren't very exciting because uh i've just been working really hard and finishing my projects so for anyone who saw the accountability thread in the Facebook group, I have been working on <clears throat> two projects at the moment. One is my dissertation and one is beta reading a book for a certain someone who shall not be named. Uh, <laughs> and I am on track and I am coming to the end of both of those projects at the end of the month as planned. So it feels weird to say that I'm being productive and actually getting them done. But I'm very happy to say that I'm being productive and getting them done. What have you been doing this week? I haven't done much this week, to be honest. I've had a lot going on, but I did write one of the kind of pivotal scenes for the Necromancer's Secret, which was quite nice. And I came up with a very significant weapon that shall be used in future books. <laughs> yes, it will be that kind of thing. Yeah, I won't say why. I'll, I'll Don't say any spoilers, but I already kind of know a bit about it and it's really good. <laughs> Thank you. The other thing is I decided to convert Hollywood Heartbreak into EPUB so that I could read it through on my tablet. And I always do that with books because it makes you feel more like a reader. But for me also, I find it easier to see the full story because Scrivener can be quite compartmentalized. And I like that for writing. But when trying to edit and things, I just prefer to read it. I know a lot of people print stuff out. I don't like wasting that much paper. I'd rather do it in a more eco-friendly way. 
So that's why I put it on my tablet and also my notes then sync through to my laptop. And my plan last night was to convert it and then put it on my tablet and read like two, two chapters while I was in the bath. I ended up spending two hours in the bath and reading 19 chapters and coming out resembling a prune. <laughs> a very relaxed and uh, well-soaked prune though, so that's good. Yeah, that's true. It definitely did help me relax and I find it a lot easier to concentrate on books when I'm in the bath because there are no distractions. I don't take my phone or anything in there, so there are no devices, there are no other screens for me to look at. It's literally me, really warm water that eases my joints and then a book. So I actually get most of my reading done in the bath, which is probably bad because then I don't read as often as I could. You're just going to have to start going for a bath two or three times a day. <laughs> my hair would hate me for that. <laughs> and probably and your water bill. Already. <laughs> yeah, true. That's true. Yeah, because we've got a water meter as well. So we do get charged more depending on how much we use. That's <laughs> no. not a good idea. And Millie would get sad because she can't have snuggles. That's true. She doesn't like coming into the bathroom generally either. So <laughs> she has tried to get into my bath once or twice, though. Yeah, I can see her doing that. Yeah. And I think she drank the bath. Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, she likes the taste of champagne. Uh, She's a weird one. Yeah. Shall we go catch up with Daniel? Absolutely. Then? We should catch up with Daniel because there's a lot to go through. Today, I am joined by Daniel Wilcox. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, God, the prep. So <laughs> I am uh, an independent author. I have been published since 2015. I was lucky enough to go full-time with my author business in 2019. Um, I am an international best-selling author. I am an award-nominated podcaster and um, co-founder of The Other Stories Podcast, which is 20-minute horror fiction that comes out every single Monday. Um, I am the CEO and owner of Devil's Rock Publishing, and I'm also the co-host of the Next Level Author Podcast with Sasha Black. Very nice. And nice you recently... succinct way of saying it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You recently published a book called The Self-Publishing Blueprint. Yes. So obviously that's a guide to how to get started self-publishing. Mm -hmm. But what would you say are the biggest mistakes you see indie authors make? And are there any differences depending on if someone's at the start or in the middle or further along in their career? Yeah, sure. I think um, to answer the second point first, yes, 100%. I think the obstacles and the challenges that you face when you're first publishing your book is very different to, you know, three, four years down the line after you've published a few different books. Um, but I'd say that one of the one of the biggest mistakes, so if we split this into sort of beginners and quote more advanced, um, take that how you will. Uh, for beginners, I think number one is um, a lot of people tend to pin the success of their first book as a marker for their success as a writer forever. And it's something that really, really frustrates me. And I get it because there's no there's no rule book to how to write. Nobody really teaches you the actual creative art of writing. And so people tend to you know, say, let's just pick an avatar. You've got someone who's in their 40s and they've decided they want to write a book, but they've been wanting to do this for like 15 years. Are they a good writer? So they write the book, they put the book out, and then it's not met with the success that they'd like because it's your first book. And if you're independently publishing, you have to build an audience. You have to learn all these marketing skills and everything else to actually get your book into readers' hands. And so people, a lot of people, like 95% of people, will put out that book. It won't hit the readers that they want to, and then they'll just quit and say, oh, I can't write. That's clearly an indication of my skill as a writer. And on some on some level, that's right, because you're still a young writer in that sense. But the, the number one thing that sh is preached in independent publishing, but should probably be magnified a bit more, 
is just this uh, exponential growth of putting books out, building up a backlist, using more products to bring people into your funnel. And really most self-published authors don't hit real success until they've got a number of books behind them. What that number is sort of varies depending on your tactics and, and your, um, your gusto as a writer. But that, that's definitely one of them is a lot of people who will just quit at that stage. It's really, really sad to see because there are some fantastic writers out there that just don't get that recognition straight away. And the other thing for beginners as well is finding the right stage to let go of their book to give to readers. So uh, you're laughing. I'm guessing this might sound familiar. <laughs> yeah, we had a phrase during my MA, which was that a piece is never finished. It's abandoned. Uh-huh. And yeah, that rings true for me for every single thing I've ever finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that really you can again there's no there's no rule book to how to sit down and begin a career in writing and a lot of people have to spend months by themselves in a room writing that book and you get into your head you wonder whether you're good enough and the only way to find out if you are quote good enough is to give it to readers or to give it to someone other than you um my argument would be make sure you're actually giving it to people who read what you're trying to achieve as opposed to yeah. like your next door neighbor or a family member really trying to like find the right person to read your book because that could make or break someone um yeah. But just knowing that point where I've, I've worked because I um, coach authors as well. And I've worked with a lot of authors who have had their first book in progress for 10 years. And that's no exaggeration. And no one's ever read it. And they wonder if they're good. And I'm like, there's only one way to find that out. And that's to give it to someone and to get that feedback. So finding the way that works for you in which you feel comfortable and you can receive that feedback will definitely push you forward. And then um, a couple of very quick ones for people who are maybe a bit further into their writing career. One mistake that I've certainly made, um, and uh, when I say mistake, it's kind of 50-50, is uh, genre switching. So I've jumped into a lot of different genres, and the people that tend to find the quickest path to success are the people that stick consistently to a genre, deliver to their readers, and build that reader base so that those readers consistently know what to expect. Um, I've jumped into post-apoc, into horror, into a little bit of sci-fi as well, and it's only now that I'm kind of really honing down and going, okay, horror, this is, this is the audience I'm building. Um, but also for me, it was a journey and I'm quite happy I took that journey because it allowed me to experiment to find out where I wanted to call home. So it's not always the worst thing, but people need to understand that it can slow down your progress as an author. Um, another one is looking after your actual reader base. So a lot of people spend a lot of time audience building and putting out Facebook ads and recruiting new readers, but not doing a whole lot to really delight and engage the readers they already have. And it's so much easier to keep current readers than it is to recruit new readers. So the more you can look after your current audience, the stronger your fan base will be and the easier it will be to grow. Uh, and then the final one is one I'm very, very guilty of a lot of the time is uh, forgetting to market your backlist. So forgetting that those books that you spent months, mm -hmm. years yep. putting out um, before, you just forget about it, you just leave and then you just, you're focusing on the current book. So really trying to get that entire backlist to work and creating an ecosystem where you're marketing everything so that it works for you as one. Going back to people who are afraid to share that book they've been tinkering with forever, even though mm -hmm. that's the only way they can find out if it's any good. What would you say to someone who is absolutely cacking it at the thought of sharing their book with, you know, their dog, let alone an actual beta reader or an editor? How would you help them with that? It's difficult because obviously it's dependent on the type of person it is. But if you are really, really bricking it, ultimately that may just be your biggest hurdle. So if you can overcome that hurdle, everything gets a bit easier from there. But also a lot of why people are afraid to put their stuff out there is just 
writing to a lot of people can be really precious it can be a thing so personal that it's you know for a lot of people their escape so you know you're out of control at work <laughs> wild at work um but you don't have a lot of control in the place that you work um you're looking for a place in which you can feel at home in which you can really sort of um i really apologize my laptop's just the fan is going absolutely crazy so if there's a humming in the background that's my laptop <laughs> don't Good worry timing. i've been there i've had it too <laughs> it's awful um but yeah it's something that's so personal so like it's it's untouched and it's yours and it's pure and the minute you give that to someone it can dilute it can change you know the meaning of what it is that you create and i think that understanding that for someone ultimately and having those conversations with people to say like okay what is it why is is what is it you're doing your writing for and then looking at what their goal is so if your goal is to publish your book the inevitable step is to give it to someone and i think that we especially as first-time writers, think that in order to give it to someone, we have to perfect it as best we can. But really, most of the growth comes in identifying mistakes, identifying patterns. Um, I've got, uh, I run an online writers group and we've got um, a guy in there who made the really, really brave step uh, before he even finished his first book, the first draft of, he gave 5,000 words to an editor to get feedback on and say like, okay, find my weak spots, tell me what I can extrapolate and put across the entire thing. I think that's such a really good attitude to have because you're going to an editor who is professional. You're allowing them a sneak peek so you can identify certain things that you can then work on um, and make your first draft stronger. And it's 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 a step forward. It's a step in the right direction. And I think that it's, it is hard, but it is an inevitable step that people just have to overcome if you want to get into this business. If maybe you get to that point and you're about to hand it off to someone and you think, oh, maybe I don't want this as strongly as I think I do. Pull it back. Keep it as yours. Keep it as something special. You don't have to put your book out there. But for people that do want to get into this kind of life, that is something just to inevitably try and take gently, take the criticism with a pinch of salt, and then try and keep moving forward. Because everything can be fixed. I've, I have I use this analogy a, a lot, and I don't know why, because it's a crap analogy. Um, but if I was to build a car from scratch now, I have no clue what I'd do. And the first car that I built would be crap and it probably wouldn't start. That's your first draft. But then if I, you know, showed that to an engineer or a mechanic and said, okay, what have I done wrong? They can show me the things. I'm, I'm obviously not going to get it right first time. I've never built a car in my life. And so the second time it might start, it still might not, but you make those sort of small changes until you get to a point in which, you know, you're comfortable, you're ready to publish it. But it is just about getting better over time and accepting that that first draft is never going to be as nice as you want it at the end. Yeah, and I think sometimes even your first book, when you look back on it, you might go, just what, why, what? And you, you almost, I hasten to say you're embarrassed by it, but you find it a little bit cringeworthy <laughs> to go back through it. Yeah. There was there's this quote I always mention, and I paraphrase it badly, so I shouldn't quote it, but it's one of the big entrepreneurs. It's either Richard Branson or Bill Gates, someone of that ilk. And they always they said that if you can't look back on things you've done in the past and feel embarrassed then you haven't grown enough oh 100 percent. i love that yeah because my i've actually been looking at my first novella again recently because like i said that came out in 2015 and that was the first thing that i really sort of put together that was of any real size and i haven't read it in a couple of years and i kind of want to go back to it and revamp it based off of what i've learned over the past six years but then i'm i'm in two minds over whether to do that because number one it could be a better product but number two, it's, you know, a stamp of where I was in time. And I don't really want to alter something that started my career 
So I'm, I'm not sure where to go with that at this point. What are the minimum steps you'd recommend someone takes when launching any book, regardless of where it is in their kind of career? Minimum steps. I mean, I think um, having a reader magnet in place is always number one fundamental to me. And actually what I've started doing with newer authors is encouraging people to get the reader magnet before they finish the first book, because you can then leverage a reader magnet to be building an audience while you're then writing that first book. So that when you come to launching that book, you have at least a small group of people that are interested in buying the book and you can start to build a bit more momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, and because reader magnets tend to obviously be a bit smaller than your main novel. So I think I've got a couple that are about seven and a half, ten thousand 10,000 words. They're, they're quicker writes. They're easier to put out there. They give people a, a flavor, a sample of the main book. And then, like I say, that gives you some boost so that when you actually do launch the main book, you've got some clout behind you. But I think in, in terms of the bare minimum, you know, publish a book, but publish it well. Make sure you've got a decent cover that is, you know, like you say, competitive among your genre. Make sure you've actually done your research into how to write a decent blurb. Again, they can vary depending on genre. There's very different ways to write a romance blurb than there is to write a post-apocalyptic blurb. Um, nail in your keywords. So you can use programs like Publisher Rocket to research your keywords, your categories, making sure that your book's positioned in the best place possible. Because that's another thing that a lot of people get is that they'll put their book out and they'll suffer with negative reviews. And if you read the reviews carefully, most of the time, it's just that you've given the book to the wrong audience. It's not that the book sucks. It's a, for example, this wasn't so much negative review, but just in terms of sales numbers, my, my latest series, When Winter Comes, um, I originally marketed that as a horror book with a post-apocalyptic lilt. And what I've realized is it's actually a post-apocalyptic book with a horror lilt. So I've had to, I've got a new cover set up for that. I'm going to be doing some tweaks and bits and pieces but it's finding exactly where your book should sit on the, on the shelf so that the right readers find it. Um, I mean, I'd say if you can get some ads stacked up. So um, I tend to either soft launch a book and have it go live a couple of days before the actual release so I can set up some ads or I'll set it up a pre-order. So I've got a link that I can give to places like um, eReader News Today, Robin Reads, those kind of promotional sites. Um, and then if you can, try and dabble with AMS, Facebook, BookBub ads and see if you can get something rolling. See if you can, you know, start that path to um, cost per click ads, which are, it's a bit more of an advanced game, I'd argue, but at the same time, it's good to kind of just put some stuff out and start wrapping your head around that. Um, obviously telling all your audience, seeing if you can get some news that swaps other people in your genre. And then the biggest thing you can do is move on to your next book. Yeah, I think people forget the Publishing the next one is also marketing the previous one. Mm-hmm. So it is in itself a form of marketing. So if people turn around and go, I hate marketing, actually, that's a very simple solution. Yeah. Right. And I think a lot of people underestimate that, particularly now with how the entertainment industry is, if you look at like Netflix and Disney Plus and like all of these sort of streaming services, everything is quick, everything's rapid. People want to know that there's more content coming. So people would be much more hesitant to jump into a book one if there's no book two than they would jump into book one if there are already four or five books out in that series or if the series is complete, which is why a lot of box sets do so well because readers jump in and they know that there's already the content there. They can get a full arc of the story um, and usually it's better value as well. So definitely just jump onto that next book and get that out. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about mindset already, but what would you say are the biggest mindset issues you've seen writers face 
I think the main one that I face, um, so as I mentioned, I coach authors. I have sort of like one-on-one power hours. I have sort of like coaching programs and things. And, and most of the work that I seem to do is unpicking expectations around the one path to success. So an example of that is over the last, you know, four, three or four years, maybe, um, the rapid release model has been very, very um, widely megaphoned across the self-publishing community. And for people unfamiliar with that model, that's essentially a model of, for example, you don't publish your first three books until you have them written. You publish one a week or two later, you publish the next one a week or two later, you publish the next one. And then you jump into a cycle of releasing a minimum really of once a month just to play the algorithms, keep it going and to feed readers so that they keep buying your product. And because that's worked so well for certain people, a lot of people have tried to replicate this. And I found that, you know, I was, I've, well, I kind of am such, I'm not one of those at the minute. I do write fast, but that's like a whole separate thing. Um, but it's, it's one of those things that it's not the only way to success. It's one way to success. And I've seen a lot of people who either have tried to make that happen and then realize that they don't write fast and therefore feel like they're failing because they're not able to keep up with these people that are like stacking books and making millions. Um, or even on the other side of that, I've worked with and around people who were rapid releases who have discovered that after a year or two, they can't keep up that pace anymore. And so it's the, the biggest mistake I, I see people making is thinking that there's this general path to success or these sort of routes that you have to take, not understanding that consistency, um, transparency, like building your brand in a way that is authentic and connects with the reader based on your genre is is really sort of the only tried and true method to keep going forward. And whatever that looks like is different for different people because me and you could write exactly the same types of books. We could have very, very similar you know paths in life in terms of like our personal lives, our financial income but we're both different people. So you might, for example, be really, really effective with Facebook ads. And I, I might be really, really good at, you know, networking and going on podcasts and doing that. And so it's understanding that there's an entire pool of ways to be successful and it's picking the tactics and the strategies that work best for you, um, which is really difficult to do when you're in a bubble and you're a writer and you're sat by yourself. And the only interaction you have with other authors are on Facebook groups or in podcasts. It's really difficult for you to validate that the path you're on is right because there's no one confirming that it is so joining communities getting involved in things like that and trying to network with other authors is a really great way to overcome that as a barrier um and then the other one um, that i'd say in terms of mindset shifts is just acting like an author there's no like I, it was really bizarre i was going back through um because i ran a podcast in 2016 called the story studio with uh, luke condor and I went back to one of our earliest episodes and we started doing these little sort of like micro episodes of, of author advice. And the irony of this was hilarious, but one of the episodes was, a, it was me giving a lesson on at what point you can call yourself an author. You know, perfect, bounces back to this. And I don't even think I believed my own advice that I gave then, but I 100% believe in the advice I was giving then now. And that's just to act like an author from the start. If you decided that you wanna write a book, you're an author, like you don't need validation from your mum, you don't need validation from your husband, your friend, your sister, whoever. If you're happy to commit to it, if you want to write, if you're ready to learn and you're eager to just up your craft and listen to people, you're an author and therefore you can act as such. Put that down as your um, Instagram profile. Like nobody will ever get their sword and dob you an author. You just have to claim it for yourself. So just do it. 
Yeah, it's amazing how many people preface the word author with things like beginner mm-hmm. or um, upcoming, newbie. soon. Yeah, mm-hmm. things like that. It's like, why do you need that differentiation? There? Yeah. Because then you're um, almost saying, I'm not quite good enough for this title at the moment. Mm-hmm. Why aren't you yeah. good enough? I've got um, a friend who's training to be a nutritionist. And uh, she she had that with hers because she's not quite qualified yet. Um, she's like a few weeks off getting a qualification. But the amount of knowledge that she's acquired from her course means that she's already coaching people and giving them sessions. And she has a real bugbear with saying, I'm a nutritionist, because she hasn't yet got that piece of paper at the end of it. But the fact is she's giving nutritional advice to people and therefore in taking on that role in acting as such you are you are a nutritionist yeah it's exactly the same with being an author isn't it Mm -hmm. yeah and there's also a distinction between writer and author i see a lot of people put i'm a writer and they'll only put i'm an author once they're holding a book in their hands Mm -hmm. yeah i'll let i'll let people take that one as they will (laughs) i'll tell people where to go on that one one of the things you've said, um, I think I saw you have a video on Instagram about it. You said that showing up for yourself, even if no one else cares, is important for writers. Why is that? Because we are the only people we can rely on when the lights are off and the room is dark. There is, you can, you can, you know, reach out to different author groups. You can, you know, ask your family and your friends to hold you accountable. Ultimately. The only person that can make you do the work is you. So if, you know, you could surround yourself in 50 of the greatest writers who are trying to motivate you and whatnot, but if you want to just stay in bed and sleep, that's what you're going to do. So that's, it, it's just as simple as that, really. Like the one lesson that I really, really learned early on in this career is that if I wanted to make it happen, I had to make it happen. And I was working a full-time job. Um, I had a newborn son. He is still alive, thankfully. Um, I've, I've won that battle, but he, like, um, around that time, there was so much going on and I only had these small pockets in the day to get work done. And that was when I'd write, I'd get up at half five, six in the morning. I'd write for half an hour to an hour in the morning. And if I didn't do that, I really, really felt the effects of it because I'd know that it, because of me, I've delayed my progress in making my author career start. So even on the days in which it was hard even on the days when it was tired i was tired when there was a thousand things to do i i showed up and i put in the work and you know thankfully over time that's paid off um and i also found that i can't remember i definitely heard this on the podcast at some point around that time because i was doing a lot of listening to a lot of podcasts to try and like get me in the mindset of becoming an author and, and taking this kind of life but whoever it was basically said that because i was working my nine to five every day i'd show up to my my job and i'd do the work and i couldn't be too tired to do the work i couldn't you know make an excuse to just sit there and do nothing so why am i putting all of that energy into a thing that i don't want to do don't get me wrong i didn't hate my job i enjoyed my job but why would i invest that time and give my best to that job and then slump in the time that i had to myself so i really took that to heart and i really you know took responsibility for the fact that if I wanted to write 5,000 words that week, I had to make that happen. Like my fiance at the time, she couldn't do it. My mum couldn't do it. Like it was, it's, it's just down to me. And I think that's the same for everyone. Um, and something that I think people know, but they never really think about is that if you want to do the thing, you have to put in the work to do the thing and no one else is going to do that work for you, especially in something as personal as writing. 
Yeah, no one's going to sit there and go, have you done any writing today? Have you hit that word count? No one's going to be there to motivate you every single day. It has to come from you. No, absolutely. And it is really difficult. Don't get me wrong. Like I get how hard it is to motivate yourself and push yourself to do that, especially if you're not in the habit or, you know, you've got the whole imposter syndrome of, oh, but I'm, I'm just like dabbling. Like I'm not, this isn't, I'm not really a writer, that kind of thing. Just commit to it, give it a go and just own it. Yeah. What have you got to lose? Mm -hmm. so that may be a little bit of your energy yes but you can get more of that that's what caffeine is exactly. for <laughs> exactly. you mentioned that your superpower and i really like this is seeing through the bullshit <laughs> why do you think that's helpful when you're coaching authors because everyone comes to me with a problem that isn't the problem they think they have and it's really interesting. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from um, in terms of like the Gallup strengths. And I don't know if people are familiar with these, but in terms of like the, the Gallup Clifton strengths, which is it, it basically ranks your first out of 31 different strengths. It gives you a top 10 and it's basically you should focus on those top 10 and magnifying those as opposed to trying to like strengthen all your weaknesses so that you can really sort of become powerful. Um, and one of my top ones is individualization, which is the ability to kind of recognize the individual in each person. And it's just fascinating because although although everyone is an individual and you all have your own paths, and we've already kind of touched on this earlier in terms of like, you know, marketing your book, um, there are commonalities that transcend all of that. So things like your personal health when it comes to finance, physical health, mental health, when it comes to your mindset around like how you approach different things, you've got your family life, you've got your work life, you've got your author life, you've got all these different factions. And people will come to me and say, um, for example, I'm really struggling to to finish this book. And they'll think that it's because they're not putting in enough work. It's because um, they're not writing fast enough. It's all this kind of stuff. But then you pick it back and it'll it could just be that they're going through a divorce in their personal life and that's really creating a block for them because they've got other things that really need their attention in terms of your life like writing isn't an isolated practice it's part of a greater whole um it could just be that they're comparing themselves to someone else and they are writing as they should be but you know they're not writing as fast as their buddy because their buddy writes much faster and that's just part of their process could be that their friend plots and these this, this person pants and there are all these different sort of factions uh, factors and most of the time I'll sit there and I'll kind of ask people to give me an idea of what it is that, you know, the problem is, where they are, where they're writing, what they're trying to deal with. And it, yeah, 95% of the time, it is a case of the actual problem that they're trying to solve is about three degrees to the left. And so <laughs> I don't, I, like I said, I don't know where it comes from, but it is just, I think by listening and trying to understand this greater mechanism in which writing fits, you are able to understand or able to identify where that pain point is and, and the real problem people are having. Um, and most people just want to be heard. Most people, like I say, we live in these really sort of vacuous chambers when we write in which we're in a room, we're by ourselves. Like even now, like I'm in a room talking to you online, but I'm in a room in a house that's miles away. And so we never have those real touch points, those interactions in which, you know, someone else can say, oh, I'm feeling that too. Or, you know, that's a normal part of the writing process. So it's, yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining this very well, but it's sort of like just breaking down those barriers and really trying to find what it is they're saying amongst what they think they're, they're trying to say. 
Yeah, I get you. Because I, I've seen the same thing. A lot of people say, oh, I'm having this problem. And then you look and it's like you say, because something's going on in their personal life, or maybe they're not, that's the wrong genre that they're writing in and they've never considered it. Or maybe they don't know the characters well enough and they're blaming the plot. And it's all these little things that mm -hmm. people have never considered. And that fresh perspective can make a massive difference in terms of overcoming that hurdle to actually finish something. Yeah. One that I see very, very commonly, um, which I'll, I'll give as like a bonus tip from my book, um, is quite a lot of people skip that first step of researching the market when they're writing their first book. Because the first book is a book that comes from the heart generally, or it comes from, yep. this, I've had this idea for 15 years and I want to put it into practice. Um, and so they'll just jump straight into writing the book and writing the story that they think needs to be told. And then they'll realize at the end of it, they've got this story that is fantastic, but hasn't been shaped into a way to fit a certain genre and reach a certain pool of readers. So a lot of the time I get people come to me without saying like, oh, it's not selling or I don't know where this fits. And then we basically have to take that step back and go right back to the beginning and go, okay, well, who are your competitor authors? I don't know. Okay, what genre is this going to fit in? Um, I think fantasy. All right, but what type of fantasy? And then it's all these questions that should have been asked, that haven't been asked, that then need to shape the book going forward. So if you're listening to this and you're a, a new author or you're halfway through your first draft, my recommendation is pause <laughs> and just really try and critically consider, does your book have the tropes of the genre you're trying to hit? Do you know where you want it in the charts to fit? All those kind of general position and market questions that will help you um, increase your chances of actually having a successful book launch when it comes to it. Yeah, I definitely think when people are writing from the heart, they kind of begrudge the idea of doing that market research. But it's like, well, do you begrudge the market research or do you begrudge your book not selling more? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, are you always going to have that niggling in the back of your head? Oh, if I'd done this market research up front, would the book sell better? Would I yeah. be happier with the results, etc.? So it does save you a lot of time and hassle and stress if you just do that work up front, even if you don't want to. 100%. And you can always, you can still tell your story. You just have to yeah. look at a couple of little touch points along the way in which, you know, you tick them off so the readers will be happy. Yeah. And then if you've done the market research and you still decide you want to go against that, at least you've got that knowledge and you essentially know why the book didn't do as well as it could have. Because there will be some people who do that writer. research. Yeah. Because <laughs> there will be some people who go like, look, I don't want to do this research. I don't want to do this genre trope. And then they're like, why is my book not selling? And it's still a very simple answer, mm -hmm. but at least they're more aware of what their reason's likely to be. Yes. And you can either go back and fix that book or you can just move on to the next one and take the lessons that you've learned and then treat that as your first marketable commercial book. Exactly. So there are lots of options there. Loads. Exactly. So let's dive into your writing process. How do you get focused during your writing sessions? I tend to try and write at the same times every day. Um, I'm much more of a morning writer than an evening writer, although that has changed over time because when I was in my old day job, sometimes it had to write in the evening, you just do what you need to. But now that I've kind of got the luxury of a bit more time, I tend to try and get a lot of my creative work done in the morning because that's just when my brain's more switched on and fresher. Um, and then when it comes to actually writing, I generally, I, I work in Scrivener. So I, I approach the page. Um, I have a quick look at what I did the day before if I need to just to refresh my mind where it is. And then I have, for people watching on video, I have a big set of headphones that I shove on. Um, I've got a Spotify playlist I made myself, which is basically just full of sort of moody, atmospheric music. And then I've got a pair of glasses that I put on. Um, and I just, most of the time, I'll set a timer for 20 minutes or so. And then I'll just close everything, focus for 20 minutes, do the work, and then surface for maybe five, 10 minutes, and then jump into the next sprint. 
and just keep repetitively going until I've hit the, the word counts that I'm after for that day. So it's very, um, it is very simple. And I do find that uh, there is a coffee shop that's quite local that I tend to go to a lot, which I only ever go to that coffee shop to write so that when I sit there, my body knows that's what I'm here for. Mentally, this is where I switch into writing mode and I just get stuff done. Because I do find that sometimes working at home where I'm working on admin and marketing stuff as well, it can sometimes be a bit trickier just to get the, the wheels turning. But yeah, it's a lot of sort of um, just little tricks. How do you deal with distractions when they come about? Like if your phone's relentlessly ringing or someone wants your attention or there's drilling outside because they're doing roadworks or something? If it's nothing that's directly demanding my attention, I'm, I'm normally pretty good. So if there's sort of like background chatter or things, like I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, I've actually re uh, discovered recently that I can listen to music that has lyrics while I write, which is strange for me. Um, <laughs> but it is interesting that you talk about distraction at the minute because I'm in the process of looking for a new house. So I'm getting a lot of phone calls at the minute from housing agents and you know mortgage advisors and all these different things. And um, the answer to that, I guess, is if it's a call that I have to take, I don't deal with it well because I, I very much like my time to go in the way that I'm, want it to go um so that's quite that is quite a challenge at the minute but then if it's facebook instagram social media all that kind of stuff i'm pretty good at just closing them down because nothing is ever really that important <laughs> nothing yeah <clears throat> nothing's ever really come up yeah, yeah, like yeah. If the house isn't on fire and no one needs hospital treatment it can wait mm -hmm. yeah, yeah i used to um when i did my early mornings i just wouldn't touch anything social i wouldn't have my phone with me i'd just sit at the computer and i'd just get the thing done um but yeah it's just turning most of it off and i know for for some people that is hard like social media is can be a real distraction and i definitely go through phases where i let it slip and then i have to pull it back um but mostly yeah it's just shutting everything down and going okay this is the thing that i need to be doing right now yeah i'm terrible for social media although i do find when i'm doing writing particularly when i'm writing fiction i do close everything down because I just can't concentrate with like my WhatsApp going off or Facebook or Twitter or any of them. And um, I actually do listen to music with lyrics and I didn't know people didn't. Oh, really? like, I've heard it more and more lately, but I've always listened to music with lyrics in. I find mm. classical more distracting. I don't know why. Interesting. But yeah, I think you can, you just get used to what you get used to. Yeah. It's, it has to be stuff I've already listened to and that I'm familiar with. Mm. So I can almost blank it out because i know what the lyrics are and stuff i'm not singing along i'm not analyzing it because i've listened to it a gazillion times but i have playlists for all of my characters for different emotions for different books and that really helps me kind of channel the energy that i'm trying to channel into that particular yes. scene or chapter yeah I, I do very similar although I'm, I'm the opposite in that respect in that i can only listen to songs that i've not listened to before because oh. if it's one that i know i'm instantly like singing that or, or thinking about the lyrics <laughs> in my head yeah, for me, if it's new, it's the novelty of it. So I'm trying to listen to it and pick apart the lyrics and things. Hmm. So I find it easier to listen to the new stuff, for instance, if I'm out with a dog, because then it doesn't really matter if I'm picking apart the lyrics because it's not yeah, like yeah. I'm having a conversation with a dog. Okay, sometimes I do. <laughs> Every dog owner does it. It's not just mm -hmm. me. <laughs> they're good listeners. No, they're not. Millie's terrible. No. Anyway, <laughs> um, you knew I was going to bring this up, so I've got to do it. You have this concept called Deathbed Dan. So mm. can you tell us a little bit about Deathbed Dan and how it came about? 
Deathbed Dan seems to be weirdly popular with people. Um, because it's, I think it's the alliterative name and the fact it's a really clever motivational tool. Yeah, so I came across the concept um, a couple of years ago um, from Gary Vaynerchuk, who is a social media marketing sort of guru, does a lot of motivational talks and talks a lot about entrepreneurship and um, productivity. And it's just, it was something that really resonated with me because, so Deathbed Dan is basically, it's a concept that if I'm sat here right now and I think ahead to myself on my deathbed, so say I'm, you know, conservatively 70, 80, whatever I make it to, um, is he going to look back on what I'm doing now and be unhappy with how I've approached today? Like, am I going to, am I going to be glad for the energy I've put in today? You know, what, how is that going to reflect on, on deathbed Dan? And so if I do have a bit of a crummy day or my energy levels are a bit low, I do sit and think, okay, what's deathbed Dan going to think about this? Am I working hard enough to make him proud? Like, is this, is this a thing that matters to him? And I think that's the real important distinction here. What it's, what it's not is a tool to say, just keep working, just keep overworking. What it is, is it's a tool to really think and consider about the actions that you're taking now. So sometimes rest is what you need. So is he saying, okay, rest now because that's going to add six years onto my life instead of taking six years off. <laughs> um, sometimes it could be that, you know, the thing that I'm worrying about isn't all that important. And, you know, five, 10 years down the line, I'm just not going to worry about it at all. So it's, it's more of a reflective tool. Um, I, like, I understand that people might think it's a bit morbid to think about yourself when you're on your deathbed. But ultimately, we get we get one shot at life. And if you're not trying to turn up every day and give 100% in whatever way that looks like, then, you know, it just, to me, anyway, it feels like a wastage. I know there are people that are very happy just sitting back and taking life at their own pace. That's not me. I want to get stuff done. I want to achieve things. And having that avatar hold me accountable. Again, it, com it comes back to the whole... Um, showing up for yourself because ultimately at that point i'm not looking at anyone else in my life because i don't care what they think of me when i'm you know 80 i'm looking at myself am i going to be happy with what i did today yeah i don't think that's morbid necessarily i think it's a really good tool and i do something similar but i know some people do find it a little bit of an uncomfortable concept or image i mm -hmm. was a little bit more abrupt with my version when i taught productivity for writers a few years ago i said to people if you were hit by a tram tomorrow how people you love feel would they be proud that you did everything you could to achieve your goals or would they feel like you'd wasted your life and i use trams because yeah. there are a lot of trams in nottingham that's why <laughs> so it's kind of a local image that would stick in someone's head a lot more yeah um, and people initially they were quite horrified by it and then they kind of went oh, okay actually yeah i get it but it's getting over that shock factor of the image in the first place but i find that fascinating as well because there is a real uh, we can go deep into this or we, we can up but there's a, there's a real sort of comfort that people have a, a real reassurance that tomorrow is guaranteed yeah and I agree. It's, it's just not like i've known um i've had friends of mine who have you know died young i've had like family members that have, have gone for various different circumstances and most of the time their death was a shock in some way like it was something that hit them suddenly or you know it was an accident um so i think it <laughs> for the, the fact that people are shocked at that image says a lot about how we generally perceive life like we just expect that you know we're going to have 2.4 kids we're going to make it up to the age of you know 80 whatever the average is think 84 maybe isn't the male average at this point yeah it's mid 80s i think but... yeah yeah um and so people then get very comfortable and you expect tomorrow to come so you don't try as hard or you think like oh i'll try doing this tomorrow because that's a guarantee and for me i just again i don't want to look back on myself when I am 80 and go, oh, you just wasted all of this time. And again, I'm always conscious when I say this stuff, I don't want to like 
feel like I'm attacking people because this is definitely how I think. And I understand that's not how everyone thinks. Um, but I also like the immediacy of what you're saying in terms of, you know, what if it does happen tomorrow? Because even right now, I'm looking at ways in which my current work's in progress. I can find some kind of accountability partner to give them to in case I die tomorrow. <laughs> and then at least like the things that I've done can either be finished or put out or something um, because nothing is guaranteed. But I think if anything, that's a real, again, it's not morbid. It's very, very positive to think like, okay, how can I make the most of today? Because then I'll be grateful on my deathbed. Yeah, I think it does depend on your perspective as to whether or not you see it as being morbid or as being positive and uplifting. I know I probably, even when I mentioned the tram thing initially, I probably saw it as a little bit morbid, but I am much more of a positive person than I was a few years ago. And I do mm. see it as challenging myself and finding opportunities to grow. And in the diary that I track things in, it's like, what are the top five things you've achieved today? And there are some weeks where I do struggle to fill it in. And then I think back and like, what the fuck have I done this week? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, when you have those weeks, then you kind of have to reevaluate and go, okay, how can I make next week better than last week and get closer to those end goals? Yeah. And it, and <laughs> it doesn't have to be a massive change straight away. Like, I think this is one thing that people also um, struggle with is that you go from, okay, maybe I'm tired sort of like sitting on the sofa and, you know, doing whatever you do in the evening all day. I'm just going to jump in and start doing all these things. And I think that's just as damaging as staying in the spot that you're in. But you, need, you really need to take like incremental slow movements in the right direction. And it's the thing that um, I got from Kevin Hart in one of the, I think it was a book or something he was uh, interviewed on. Just try and be better than you were yesterday. And that if you phrase it in that way, it doesn't have to be significantly marked. It doesn't have to be like, be double as good as you were yesterday. Cause then that's like a big leap. It's just whatever you've done yesterday, see if you can be a bit better than that today and just build up those incremental changes. And then if you have a day in which, you know, you have to rest or something goes wrong, you take a couple of steps back, just start again and just build it up. And really that's just the, the steadiest routes to trying to be your best self. I hate that phrase but yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it's the one it's the most appropriate i guess isn't it yeah 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 how can i be my best me <laughs> yeah and also remember that the best you now is going to be vastly different to a year ago or a mm -hmm. year in the future yeah none of us know what is going to happen in the future but as long as we're working towards something that's what counts right 100 percent. changing tone slightly <laughs> depending on how morbid you want to get <laughs> Why do you love horror? I don't know. <laughs> no, I am. Um, I, so I've, I've had a lot of, I've been asked this a few times. I've had a, quite a lot of time to think about this. And I think I'm still trying to find what the, um, the most accurate answer is. I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways to come at it. Number one, um, I read a couple of horror books when I was a teen and the language, the prose, everything about it was beautiful. And I think that there's a real challenge with horror in finding beautiful prose to describe morbid things. And so you got people like um, Clive Barker, obviously Stephen King's kind of a given, Ray Bradbury, all these people that would write really beautiful prose over such sort of macabre subject matter. And I think just an exposure to sort of real adult prose, or my exposure to real adult prose came from horror. So there's a real sort of just love there for it. And then when it comes to my life, I would argue that I've had a pretty uneventful childhood like it's very I've, I, I haven't 
luckily suffered from any sort of like trauma or anything. And so there's a curiosity that comes with exploring the darker side of life and looking at the taboos and, you know, things that people typically don't talk about. Like we've touched quite a lot on death today, and that's a conversation that a lot of people are quite uncomfortable having. And so when it comes to my horror or my particular brand of horror, I tend to write a lot about um, scenarios in which people or a person or a group of people are stripped back away from any artificiality of what life is so like no cell phones no um amenities just i really like scenarios when people are sort of trapped and all that's left is for them to be what is fundamentally human and you know whichever direction that goes normally horribly um it's quite fun to to play with that which is i think also why i like going into post-apocalyptic because you reinvent the world from the ground up like some have technology some don't and it's 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 really so it's about the relationships and it's about um people's mindsets and how they how they get over these sort of situations so i think a lot of it is just playfulness curiosity um as i say the the prose was always something that i absolutely loved just from the start and there is some really really fantastic written prose in horror that i think people miss out on but then i understand why some people don't want to touch into the realm of monsters and death and <laughs> the horrible stuff yeah i only really got into horror a couple of years ago i can remember like i don't know probably seven years ago watching the woman in black absolutely mm. terrified of it nearly had nightmares was that the daniel uh, radcliffe one it was yeah i, w yeah. I was a massive freddy cat and yeah. it didn't help that when i grew up the horror genre was literally just people slashing each other to death it was all things like sore and hostile which mm -hmm. didn't appeal to me i don't want to watch people beat the shit out of each other but then one halloween a couple of years ago my boyfriend put the conjuring on okay and i didn't pay a lot of attention initially but then because at the heart of the conjuring it's a it's about family it caught my attention because that's why i connect with it. it's the characters it's not the plot for me although the plot obviously enhances it it was the fact that it is about this couple and then this family being haunted and so that just it's like something switched in my brain and mm -hmm. then also we watched the haunting of hill house and the babadook and they're both metaphors and when i discovered that my mind was blown because i'm <laughs> like these are the most incredible metaphors i don't want to spoil the ending for the babadook for anyone who hasn't seen it but it's brilliant it's a genius like I just thought it was so clever. I'm really trying not to say what it is. And I know that the, I know that the director had to fight for that ending because it was seen as unsatisfying compared to your typical Hollywood film. Interesting. Um, have you seen it? I haven't. No, I've. To be fair, I. So I'm kind of similar in that sense of um, I am much more drawn to written horror than mm. I am to film horror. Yeah. Um, there's quite a few I've seen. Like what was one that uh, Midsummer? I saw a couple of years ago was really really well done um but i was never appealed by like slasher just blood just anything it has to have some kind of semblance of a story in there for me yeah. like i was I yeah i don't i don't just do splatter gore no i really struggled with that my boyfriend quite likes it and he kept trying to say oh you'd like saw because it's got this story in it and it's got the guy from princess bride in i'm like I don't want to watch people get tortured <laughs> like, i just don't it's, i don't that's care. the point of horror is it? story i'm not gonna watch it yeah it's the same as any other genre there, there are different flavors um there are different types of horror and i think that conventionally most people tend to f hear horror and see like freddy versus jason and saw mm -hmm. and anything that like just slashes and and kills everyone uh, obviously most people die in horror but <laughs> you, there is a new wave of um 
what they're calling elevated horror, which I, I'm not really sure what, where I sit on that as a thing, but it's it's much more sort of almost psychological suspense, like you say, more grounded in people and relationships. Um, I'm trying, I can't remember the name of the film. It might come to me at some point. But yeah, there are some really good films coming out that are lots more explorative of psychological horror, which I quite like. Yeah, or I do as well. I actually analysed um, horror as part of my media A-level. Nice. But 18-year-old me did not want to watch horror films but the funny thing was neither did our teacher so she'd skip forward to the significant <laughs> parts of the film because she'd seen it like a dozen times when teaching it so she'd just explain the important bits and then skip to the next bit so we never really had to watch it and we still did well oh, fair. and someone dies <laughs> there and it's, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> and we watched the really old school horror like Nosferatu like Psycho like there was another one I've gotten Jaws Jaws was classed as horror when it came out mm. but how many people would necessarily class Jaws as horror now well yeah because a lot strange. of um yeah, people's expectations of just the ratings of things has changed massively. Like some things that are coming out now would definitely have been 18 years ago and are now 12s. Yeah. People are Society a lot more changes. immune. It mm -hmm. does, yeah. It's like, obviously a bunch of 18-year-olds in a room watching an old horror film is already going to be a bit immature. But a lot of people in my class were laughing through Nosferatu because it just mm -hmm. didn't look scary. Mm -hmm. And the prosthetics and stuff were just so obvious. You know, we've got much higher expectations and unfortunately I think because of things like social media and the news and film constantly trying to push expectations, we are a bit more immune. Like a study yeah. a few years ago showed there's a lot more bloodshed in films now than there were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And people yeah, can still don't bat an eyelid. Yeah, and we can, we can go onto YouTube and watch people get beheaded now. Like it's yeah. the accessibility towards um, taboo has, has changed massively. It had, yeah. But then I think there's still a bit of judgment there when it comes to certain genres, particularly the more niche ones, like horror. So why do you think some people kind of judge or look down on genres like horror? I think it's like anything. I think it's just a misunderstanding of what you're, you're going to expect because you think horror and, like I say, you just see blood being splattered <laughs> like across the screen. But so many of the... So many of the better horror stories that i've read um and again i'm pulling back mostly to fiction and novels because that is where kind of like my love lives um you can't have those horrible moments without investing in the real relationships of the characters so the stories that you read the characters and their relationships are so exquisitely written that you actually care for them and i've said this on um, a previous podcast i was on but i still find that although i know that in horror most people tend not to make it because you know it's horror and lots of people do die unfortunately that is a trope that exists i i still will read books and root for things to be a happy ending um there's a a book by um christopher golden called ararat and i was reading that and again i won't give too many spoilers away but there was a part on that where these characters at the end were walking down this mountain and i was rooting for them to to make it and things happened and it wasn't and it, it just it's bizarre because by this point i've read you know hundreds of horror books i've written enough of them myself that you think that you wouldn't be fooled by that but but you are and yeah i think mostly it's just it's a misunderstanding it's a reflection of other people's limits when it comes to their willingness to play in the darker side and i get this a lot because i like to think i'm a pretty nice guy but then when I tell people I write horror, the first thing they say is, what, you? Because I think you expect, like, the metalhead with the beard and the scars yeah. and, like, all, all of that kind of stuff. But most of the horror writers that I've met 
are some of the nicest people I've met in my life. And that's not to say some of them haven't been through, you know, tragedy that has fueled their horror, but I think having an outlet to put that stuff out and not have to worry about it or to process it or to think about it or to attack it in some way is is a therapy in itself. And a lot of people just assume that, you know, you're you're screwed in the head if you can create these horrible scenarios. <laughs> but I think I also think we all have, you know, the ability to create horrible scenarios. Like I can't walk over like the side of the, the pavement of a bridge without thinking of like jumping in and wondering what will happen if that happened. Or if I'm driving along the motorway, some voice in my head's always like, just quickly touch it to the left and just ram off this verge. Like there's everyone has those thoughts where it's like stuff that you think, oh I shouldn't think. Because we're all curious by the what comes next. But I think some of us embrace that more than others because of I don't know, it could be a multitude of reasons, but I think yeah, mostly it boils down to people's own parameters when it comes to what they're willing to explore and just that that sort of um gap in in understanding each other yeah i think for me what i've come to realize about horror and i do watch it more than i read it hmm. um just because i watch film and tv more than i read in general anyway i know i shouldn't say that as an author but i do i think um, you can i think you're allowed I, i've actually had people say why are you teaching storytelling using a film because a film is 90 minutes and a book is about 10 hours mm -hmm. which is more common but yeah, yeah. For me, it boils down to the darker side of humanity and forcing us to face that whether it is our fears of life after death or of driving off a bridge or of someone <laughs> slaughtering us wearing a crazy mask, it forces us to face those deep, dark fears. And actually, some of the most chill people I know are horror fans, like my boyfriend. He pretty much exclusively watches and reads horror and comic book stuff. And he is the single most laid-back person you will ever meet. Mm -hmm. You just don't have to worry about it because on some level you're processing that stuff anyway. So yeah. if anything, like I said this in a recent interview, but I think it came across more morbid than I meant, but like it prepares you because, you know, life isn't all sunshine and rainbows and sometimes bad things happen. And so for me, as someone who lived a childhood that was relatively event free in terms of, you know, bad stuff, like there's a preparedness now in me, like I've explored and obviously like I have limits. There are certain things that I won't explore in my book. So I don't do a lot in terms of like sexual horror because that's just an arena I don't want to go into. Um, but there's i've had chances to process and to explore you know what characters might do and what different people might do and if you go into it really sort of psychologically and do some psychoanalytics i'm sure that there are enough characters in my book that are reflective of people in my real life that maybe i've been concerned about their behavior and subconsciously put them into um, my book and processed it but yeah it's a it, it does breed a certain preparedness for when those darker times do come so that you do tend to be a bit more laid back yeah i think I wouldn't have been able to write The Ghost Skull had my nan not passed away a couple of years ago. Because I don't know why, that just opened me up to it. I don't believe in ghosts. I, like, all my readers, when I asked them, said they do pretty much. <laughs> I genuinely don't. But I just feel like, you know, writing about these things in the realm of fantasy or horror, because my stuff's more fantasy than horror, it just like you say it allows me to face those things and raise those questions and it's not even just the life after death stuff there's a lot of psychological manipulation that's going to happen in later books and i know that's a fear a lot of people face i'm not saying mm -hmm. i'm afraid my boyfriend's going to psychologically manipulate me he's not <laughs> always gotta be careful it, well we've been together 12 years so if he was going to do it at some point it'd probably be long before now <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah i think I do think it's quite a good coping mechanism that some people haven't even considered because they're afraid to tap into that really dark part of their mind as if it makes them more twisted or mm -hmm. more angry or more whatever. 
Yeah, I don't really... Because the first horror books I actually ever read were the Goosebumps series, R.L. Stein. Had to be. <laughs> I think that's where most people sort of um, around our generation just tended to launch from. Um, but yeah, it was really jumping into Stephen King. And for me, when I first started writing, because originally I started out wanting to write a fantasy series. And, you know, first ever book, probably 100,000 words, first book of a trilogy. That's definitely a good place to start when you've never written a novel before. <laughs> and I really struggled with it. And I got sort of three or four chapters in each time, stopped, went back. And then I read um, Stephen King's got a short story collection called Everything's Eventual. And just the art form of his telling in short stories and the different directions and the ways that he took these stories just really sort of inspired me to tap into that horror vein. and. That's where the first novella I wrote, Sins of Smoke, came from, was just this real wanting to play with some of the ideas I got from that book. And because it was a novella and it was smaller, it meant it was easier to complete as a first project. And then just I really, really enjoyed writing the horror in there. And it just kind of went on. I don't know about you, but I certainly think if you struggle to, fi to finish things, short stories and novellas can be quite a good place mm -hmm. to go to because they're just less intimidating and there are less threads to manage. Yeah, 100%. That's definitely advice I've given to, to people just to cleanse the palette between projects or if you're stuck on a project, quickly finish a short story or or the reader magnet because they're always short. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're definitely good to just wrap up because you don't get a, I was going to say a lot of sense, a big sense of achievement, but you definitely get, you get a big sense of achievement when you finish the book, but it takes months to do often, mm -hmm. depending on what type of writer you are. And so, yeah, having those having those smaller wins and having something that you can hold up and be like, yeah, this is done is definitely useful for keeping that momentum and, and taking those steps forward. Yeah, and it builds your confidence then so you feel more able to write something a little bit longer and more capable as a storyteller and you've learned mm -hmm. something because I think a lot of the learning comes from actually finishing something rather than constant stop and starting or constantly tinkering the same project. I'd argue all the learning comes from finishing. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I can see that. I can like, see that. I have had people not believe me until they've finished a book and then they suddenly have an epiphany and go, you're right. I'm like, oh. uh-huh. <laughs> because they don't, they don't want to accept that you're right because that means yeah. they have to finish the book. Yeah. And obviously it takes them years to finish the book. So they don't uh -huh. know until that's actually out for sale on Amazon and Apple and wherever else. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and like coming back to, coming back to the car analogy, you can't say that you know how to build a car or that you tried until you've actually done it. Yeah. And I think the biggest curse I see in writers is people that, uh, it's, it's to spin the wheel thing so they'll write chapters one through five and then they'll suddenly realize that they want to change chapter one so they'll change chapter one which then changes chapter two three four five and then they write chapter six which then alters what they originally did so they go back to chapter one two three four five six mm. and then they write seven and they're like oh no and then another idea will come and they'll go crap and they'll start again and to everyone I've, i ever encountered my my entire advice is just keep going yeah if you've got a cool idea note it down for the second draft just finish the first draft yeah, because that is the hardest part of the entire mm -hmm. process is finishing that draft. And I know like even now when I've done 15 books, I still feel a sense of relief than when that first draft is done. Yeah, because that's like, heavy lifting. Handbreed. <laughs> it was definitely he the heavy lifting last week because I wrote mm -hmm. three, four really intense scenes in two days. Ooh. And then my friends were like, no wonder you feel like shit. I'm like, can I get some cake, please? <laughs> cake and wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much Roger. i did make a very nice cake actually okay nice. so tying back into horror then mm -hmm. what authors would you recommend readers should check out if they want to get into horror like me for example 
So um, number one straight away comes into my head, Nick Cutter. Um, Nick Cutter is the pen name of, uh, I want to say, Craig Davidson. Um, I'm pretty sure that's right. But he has a book called The Troop, which is absolutely phenomenal, um, especially when it comes to sensory horror. So it's one of those books where you hear, you feel, you taste, you smell like it's it's beautiful. Wow. Um, and he's got a few others as well that are quite good, um, Little Heaven and uh, The Deep. And then you have people like... Um, Clive Barker, if you want to go sort of a bit more classic, Clive Barker's prose is just wonderful. A little sort of more dated now compared to some contemporary horror, but it's very, very good. Um, his books of blood are fantastic for sort of short stories and just getting a taste of who he is. Adam Neville wrote um, The Ritual, which came out as a horror film, I want to say 2013 maybe. But the book is sensational. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, it's one of those ones that there's like a chapter in there that I come back to every year or so and just reread because it's just exquisitely delivered it's yeah um keelan patrick burke who is big on sort of the indie author scene he's big on the bookstagram community and he writes um fantastic stuff he's got a book called sour candy which i high, highly recommend it's a novella jennifer ann gordon who won the uh kindle's best horror 2020 last year um the beautiful silent and frightening that book's called jack ketchum again classic horror richard layman going back more into the 80s a bit well very dated but fantastic writing um obviously Stephen King has been mentioned find his horror books as opposed to because he's got a lot of thrillers and stuff now like try and find things like Pet Cemetery or um oh my mind's gone blank what was his vampire one Salem's Lot Salem's Lot there goes yeah I really uh, like that one I know like coming at uni yeah Cujo is one of my favorites of his Cujo is fantastic I don't know if I could read that with it being a dog <laughs> yeah but you can do like it's, it's he does so much with such a, a restricted environment and yeah it's, it's just really well done um but yeah there are loads of paul tremblay um josh malaman has, has got obviously bird box kind of leaks into horror um yeah there's there's loads i could i could keep going with <laughs> i think we should stop there in case we bombard people in the <laughs> and they're like actually where do i start from this list <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so talking about you and books then what's one book that changed your life i think the book that because there have been lots of books that have altered the way i think or sort of changed trajectory of, of of my life but i think the biggest one was um i read a book when i was 17 called fuck it by john c parkin and the principle behind that book is it's teaching essentially sort of buddhist philosophy but through a lens of contemporary like western language so it's the notion of in buddhism it's the notion of letting go so obviously when you meditate you try and like let go of your anxieties the different um things that you think in all the different thoughts but in modern day a lot of us just say like fuck it so when you get to a point where like oh my god how am i gonna like deal with this person i don't know if i'm gonna be able to like get to the party on time or whatever most people just go ah fuck it it doesn't matter and in saying that it's that releasing of of tension and whatever that worry is and the book's really good because it's it's phased in different chapters that address different parts of your life so relationships food money and you can literally flick open this book at any point and it'll kind of like guide you through release and worry about that and it was just it just kind of took a lot of the um i guess quote importance off of a lot of things that i was worrying about that didn't really need to be worried about when you were 17 i get that there's always something you're worrying about in the back of your mind even if you don't consciously realize that you are worrying about it mm -hmm. and again you're saying like, something like that in your arsenal yeah and just saying fuck it and just feeling yourself go oh now i'm not worried anymore yeah it is a nice sense of relief when you just let go mm -hmm. 
So where can readers go to find out more about you? Yeah, so everything I'm doing can be found at www.danielwilcox.com. And it's Wilcox, which is W-I-L-L-C-O-C-K-S, which is probably one of the longer ways of spelling it. Um, but yeah, you can find my books on there. You can find my coaching. You can find the podcasts that I've been involved with. Just anything you want over on there or just message me and say hi. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great chat. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button. Or if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe and hit the like button. It helps other writers to find us and it lets us know what type of content you want more of. And don't forget you can support the writer's mindset over on Patreon for as little as your favourite coffee a month. Join our growing gang of writers and get early access to episodes, bonus content and writing workshops. Visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset to find out more. See you next time. Keep writing.